Triple Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm your hostess, Karen Curtis. Well, this week we're going to talk about war. What does Florida have to do with war, let alone world war? This would be the largest, if you were to move in with all those forces, would be the largest invasion since World War II. It would change the world. That's our president, Joe Biden. He says he has no intention of moving U.S. military forces into Ukraine. Those forces in high alert are they're part of a NATO operation, not a sole U.S. operation. And I've made it clear to uh, President Putin that we would be, we have, our, we have a sacred obligation, Article 5 obligation to our NATO allies. Well... Russia has massed more than 100,000 troops on the border with Ukraine, and we've got about 8,500 to 9,000 U.S. troops on standby for possible deployment to Eastern Europe and the Baltic region. Meanwhile, the Pentagon is ordering a state of heightened military readiness. Here's Democratic Senator Chris Murphy. He's warning it could get ugly. I think this is going to be bloody. I think it's going to come with a huge cost, both in terms of lives to the Russian army, but also in rubles and dollars to the Russian economy. So as we are on the brink of war with Russia, I wanted to tell you about Florida's brush with war. First against the Soviet Union during the Bay of Pigs fiasco and Cuban Missile Crisis, and then against Germany during World War II, when Nazi subs started sinking ships off of Florida. Throughout the early months of 1942, German U-boats would attack shipping and ports along the American coast, from Canada all the way down to Florida. German periscopes would rise out of the water close enough to the coast. Well, let's start with Cuba and the Bay of Pigs. Just for reference, Cuba is about 90 miles south of Florida. This is the shortest distance between Florida's Key West Island and Cuba's capital, Havana. So basically, Cuba is in our backyard. I mean, for God's sake, some people like Diana Nyad have been able to swim from Cuba to Key West. Yes, she made it all the way across the Florida Straits. Was to prevent a nuclear warhead from hitting us. So what does all this have to do with Florida and true crime? Well, this is not the first time that we Floridians have tangled with the Russians. Here is an excerpt from one of my television newscasts from May of 1987, when I was the main anchor, the main weekend anchor at WCJB in Gainesville, Florida. This is young cub reporter Karen. In other state news, two Florida radio stations went off the air for five minutes today, so Federal Communications Commission officials could measure new Soviet broadcasts being beamed at Americans. One radio personality says he can hear the Soviet interference on his station's frequency behind his words and music. Last week, the Soviets began using a Cuban transmitter to beam broadcast to Americans over the 10.40 a.m. ban each Sunday. You think my voice was high then when I first started in radio at KGU in Honolulu, I sound like a pissed off Minnie Mouse. Ooh! So to lower my register while I was riding my moped to work, I would go, ah. It was better than bourbon and cigarettes. So now... There is worry, according to our State Department, that the Russians could actually launch a cyber attack against us if we try to deter them or send in NATO troops or our troops. Now, by the way, that was just one of two stories about the aggressions of the Soviet Union in the newscast. Remember, the Soviet Union or USSR fell December 26, 1991, and that was 1987. So in early 1961, President John F. Kennedy concluded that Fidel Castro was a Soviet agent. 
working to subvert Latin America. So he authorized a secret invasion of Cuba by a brigade of Cuban exiles. Well, actually, it all started with Dwight D. Eisenhower, but then Kennedy continued it. The U.S. set up a staging ground in Guatemala. They painted American planes to look like Cuban planes so the Cubans wouldn't shoot them down. But they still did. Castro knew the invasion was coming days in advance. Apparently, we tipped them off because the CIA wanted failure all along. The spooks didn't think Castro could be overthrown with a minor military incursion. They thought they needed a full-blown invasion. Just a minor invasion wouldn't work. The operatives were hoping Kennedy would order a full invasion after the smaller one failed. Well, Florida played an important role in the Bay of Pigs, specifically the tiny island of Yuseppa off Florida's Gulf Coast. A large percentage of the early recruits arrived in Miami, and they were students who came from a Cuban university and were followers of Manuel Artime. He was a disaffected one-time Castro revolutionary considered by the CIA as a key to what was to become the Bay of Pigs. Others were mostly disaffected Cuban army troops. By the way, the invasion was called the Bay of Pigs because that's the name of the inlet on the southern coast of Cuba that was to be invaded. Here in South Florida, we have Boca Raton, which means literally rat's mouth. Now, a guy named Carl Jenkins was a CIA officer and a former Marine. He had uh, trained infiltration teams in Saipan, so he was sent to Miami to start putting together the Cuban Exile Brigade. And when he arrived in Miami, Jenkins said that we came to the understanding that Artime would provide the students and he would establish contact with the ex-Cuban army people. They knew each other, but they weren't prepared to work together at that point. Meanwhile, the CIA was arranging cover and setting up a covert training facility on this Florida island, Yuseppa. It's a 100-acre plot of land with a vacant resort hotel located about mm, 15 to 20 minutes by boat off Florida's Gulf Coast. It's near Fort Myers, and it was to become the first covert CIA base in Florida. Now, Fred Goody, he's a well-to-do Cuban businessman of Scottish descent, along with a half dozen others, provided the cover. They leased Yuseppa Island under Goody's name, and then Jenkins was listed as the company manager. So the idea was that, according to Jenkins, Goody and his group had contracted with a personnel company, which would assess the abilities of all the people that they sent over there, and then try to assign them a suitable job that fit their abilities, like based on language, skills, and so forth. Well, President Eisenhower signed off on March 17, 1960, on what was to become the Bay of Pigs. And then Jenkins and another CIA agent started ferrying recruits from Miami to Yuseppa a month later. Then Jenkins and a new CIA guy would pick up the exile recruits in the afternoon at a White Castle parking lot on Brickell Avenue in downtown Miami in rental cars. Others were picked up from a safe house in Fort Lauderdale, and they would drive them along Old Tamiami Trail through the Everglades to the departure point by boat for Yuseppa. And they would return the same night, a round trip of some 300 miles or about six hours. Tamiami Trail is really the only way in the very southern part of Florida to get from the east coast to the west coast. We also have Alligator Alley. And then you've got Old 27 for all you lonely truckers. Anywho... Well, Jenkins estimates it took a couple of months to ferry the 80 exile recruits, and Artime was among them, to Yuseppa, where he decided that they needed to have serial numbers if they were going to have a semi-military operation. You know, like name, rank, and serial number. 
Well, they started with 2,500 so that if any of these guys were picked up in Cuba and asked their serial numbers, it would indicate that there were at least 2,500 more than there actually were to scare them. But once the recruits arrived on Yusepa, they were subjected to intense assessments. Each recruit was given a physical examination, along with intelligence, psychological, and general aptitude tests, a lie detector test. Some were also trained as radio operators. And Jenkins says before they were finished, they knew more about the recruits than their own parents. It was the beginning of what eventually was to become Brigade 2506. At that time, there was no intention of a brigade or invasion. It was August of 1960 before that idea was ever sold. So in June of 1960, about 30 to 80 or so recruits at USEPA were sent to Panama for training in guerrilla warfare, as well as intelligence gathering and propaganda. Most of the others went to a newly opened training base in Guatemala, where they also received additional military training, and that's where they painted the planes as well. Jenkins was to become the first commander in Panama, as well as in Yusepa. Now, as for Yusepa today, it is an exclusive home to the well-to-do. There's about 140 exclusive homes, two restaurants, two marinas, and a store. Its motto, no bridges, no cars, no crowds. The island is administered by the Yusepa Island Club. I got married on Boca Grande. It's also a private island. It was owned by the DuPonts at the time I got married in 97, no, 94. And apparently you had to have permission from the DuPonts to get married there. And fortunately, a friend of the family, his sister was married to a DuPont, so that all worked out. But it's really quite swanky. So what happened after all that preparation in Florida for the Bay of Pigs? The brigade hit the beach at the Bay of Pigs on April 17, 1961, but the operation collapsed, crashed and burned in spectacular failure within two days. President Kennedy ordered a review of what happened and determined that somebody leaked the plan to invade to the Russians and the Cubans. April 15, 1961, the CIA sent planes to Cuba, but they landed in Key West and the pilots claimed to be defectors. Kennedy refused to provide any air support. The CIA covered up deaths associated with the Bay of Pigs. Cuba lost more than 5,000 men. We gave Castro $53 million in food and medical supplies in exchange for 1,000 American prisoners who were returned to Miami. Then came the Soviet-Cuban Missile Crisis, which was born out of the hostile relationship between the U.S. and Cuba. Remember, we thought Castro was a Russian agent. And lo and behold, in the early 1960s, U.S. spy planes snapped some photos of the construction of nuclear ballistic missiles by the Soviet Union on Cuban soil. Remember, it's 90 miles south of Key West. President Kennedy did not want the Soviet Union or Cuba to know that he had discovered the missiles. So he met in secret with his advisors for several days to discuss the problem. 
After many long and difficult meetings, Kennedy decided to place a naval blockade or a ring of ships around Cuba. The aim of the quarantine, as he called it, was to prevent the Soviets from bringing any more military supplies to the island nation. He demanded the removal of the missiles already there and the destruction of the sites. On October 22nd, President Kennedy spoke to the nation about the crisis in a televised address. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Upon receiving the first preliminary hard information of this nature, last Tuesday morning at 9 a.m., I directed that our surveillance be stepped up. And having now confirmed on a course of action, this government feels obliged to report this new crisis to you in fullest detail. The characteristic of these new missile sites indicate two distinct types of installations. Several of them include medium-range ballistic missiles capable of carrying a nuclear warhead for a distance of more than 1,000 nautical miles. Each of these missiles, in short, is capable of striking Washington, D.C., the Panama Canal, Cape Canaveral, Mexico City, or any other city in the southeastern part of the United States, in Central America, or in the Caribbean area. Additional sites not yet completed appear to be designed for intermediate range ballistic missiles capable of traveling more than twice as far and thus capable of striking as far north as Hudson's Bay, Canada, and as far south as Lima, Peru. In addition, jet bombers capable of carrying nuclear weapons are now being uncrated and assembled in Cuba while the necessary air bases are being prepared. This urgent transformation of Cuba into an important strategic base by the presence of these large, long-range, and clearly offensive weapons of sudden mass destruction constitutes an explicit threat to the peace and security of all the Americas. I mean, how scary is that? Well, on October 24th, Soviet vessels approached the quarantine line, but then turned back. I mean, we were all shaking in our boots. Three days later, the Cubans shot down a U.S. reconnaissance plane. After these near flashpoints, Kennedy responded on October 27th to the first of two letters sent by Khrushchev proposing various settlements of the crisis. Kennedy accepted the Soviet offer to withdraw the missiles from Cuba in return for the end to the quarantine and a U.S. pledge not to ever invade Cuba. The same day, Attorney General Robert Kennedy told the Soviet ambassador that if the Soviet Union did not remove the missiles, the United States would do so. Robert Kennedy also offered an assurance that Khrushchev needed. Several months after the missiles were removed from Cuba, the United States would also remove its missiles from Turkey. On the basis of those understandings, the Soviet Union agreed on October 28th to remove its missiles from Cuba. Phew, we here in Florida breathe a collective sigh of relief. Exactly how close the United States 
Florida and the Soviet Union came to nuclear war over Cuba remains one well-kept secret of the Cold War. Right now, Putin is making demands that include a guarantee that Ukraine will never be allowed to join NATO. Russia also has demanded the U.S. and its allies stop all military activity in Eastern European and Central Asian countries that were Soviet republics. Do you think Putin wants to rebuild the Soviet Union? Well, today, President Biden is not sure of Putin's next move. He says it's like reading tea leaves. But again, this was not Florida's first brush with a potential war. In 1943, U.S. Navy carrier planes blasted German U-boats in the Atlantic off of Florida. Flying high above a United Nations convoy somewhere in the Atlantic, Navy cameramen accompany patrol planes on the lookout for enemy submarines. Suddenly, a radar is sighted as it comes to the surface. By radio, word is flashed to an American aircraft carrier, and dive bombers are dispatched to the area. Guns blazing, the planes pounce upon the submarine before it can submerge. God love those military films glorifying war. Now we just embed reporters and bring you the real thing live. Remember when Geraldo was thrown out of Iraq by the Pentagon? He was expelled for broadcasting details about future U.S. troop movements. He even drew a map in the sand live on Fox. (laughs) Jeez. Well, German U-boats were attacking ships right off the coast of Palm Beach County in 1942. There was a British tanker called the Eclipse. It was torpedoed by U-564, which was commanded by German ace Reinhard Teddy Schuren. The U-boat had been resting on the bottom of the ocean for hours, and then it quietly rose to periscope depth and fired a 23-and-a-half-foot-long electric torpedo that raced toward the tanker at 35 miles an hour. The Eclipse was bobbing with a bunch of other pleasure craft only one and a half miles off Boynton Beach. Two and a half minutes later, the thing finally hit the eclipse. Now, even though there was an explosion and the engine room was flooded, the British tanker was relatively lucky. She didn't sink. She suffered only four casualties, but that included two fatalities. Other ships attacked by the U-564 off Palm Beach County would not be as fortunate. One was an American steamer, the Ohioan, on May 8th, 1942 off Boynton Beach. The other one was a Panamanian tanker, the Lubrafall, that was torpedoed the next morning off Delray Beach. Unlike the Eclipse, both of those ships sank. The Ohioan lost 15 of her 37 crew members, and the Lubrafall lost 13 of her 44. So the U-564 eventually met her fate when she was sunk on June 14, 1943 off the coast of Spain by depth charges dropped by a British aircraft. The most dramatic sinking in Florida waters took place the night of April 10, 1942, when U-123 torpedoed the tanker Gulf America off Jacksonville Beach. The resulting fiery explosion was clearly seen on shore, and curious crowds gathered to watch the ship's destruction and looked on in shock as the German submarine surfaced and fired its deck gun at the tanker. In response to the Gulf America sinking, in which 19 crew members were lost, 
Florida's Governor Holland ordered a blackout of lights on land that would be seen at sea and might silhouette passing ships. Number of sinkings declined dramatically in the fall of 1942 due to an increased escort and anti-submarine patrols by ships and blimps that belonged to the U.S. military and the Coast Guard, as well as by civil air patrol aircraft and private vessels. The continued presence of U-boats in Florida waters was confirmed, however, by the shooting down of an American military blimp by a German submarine, oh, the humanity, in the waters off the Florida Keys in July of 1943. Who said that World War II never darkened our door? And there were German saboteurs in Florida. Florida became a scene of a bizarre plot in June of 1942 when four saboteurs came ashore from a German submarine, the U-584, near Ponta Verdra Beach. They buried boxes of explosives and other equipment in the dunes for future use. The men then boarded a bus for Jacksonville before splitting into two groups and then traveled to New York and Chicago. The agents were to join with four other saboteurs who had landed on New York's Long Island, and they planned to bomb key railroads, bridges, and factories, producing goods for the war. Fortunately, one of the guys that was in New York had misgivings about his mission and surrendered them to the FBI. By June 27th, all the men had been apprehended. A military court later tried the eight Germans and found them guilty of spying. Six of the spies, including all of the Florida group, were executed. So I hope you're not thoroughly bored by this little history lesson, but this is me trying to tell you that it's possible that history may repeat itself. We're just going to have to wait and see what happens at the Ukraine border. Well, I want to thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with more Florida true crime. Be sure to check me out on Instagram at Full Rigor Podcast. Also, subscribe, download on all the major podcast platforms. Please give me five stars if you liked it. And I appreciate you listening. Until next time, thanks for joining me.